Hello and welcome to Series 3 of Greenbelt's Somewhere to Believe in podcast. In this series, a nun, a rabbi, a Muslim convert, a Lutheran firebrand, a humanist, an American liberation theologian, a retired Met police officer and an LGBTQ priest all walk into a bar. You know they always say don't talk about religion or politics. Well, funny that because that's what we like to talk about most at Greenbelt. Perhaps that makes us impolite. Find out and join us in this series of no-holds-barred conversations with extraordinary people who are prepared to wear their hearts on their rolled-up sleeves for whom faith isn't personal, who get stuck in because of what they believe. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Another week has gone by. Good. Yeah? Is life changing for you? Are you doing anything exciting? Uh, no. No. <laughs> no, I'm not. Are you doing anything exciting? <laughs> well, um, it depends what you think is exciting. I'm doing a lot of work on our half-finished house um, since I've been furloughed this summer. I'm learning a lot of new skills and taking a lot of time doing tasks I never thought I would do on the house. And I'm, I'm actually really enjoying it, but it's probably incredibly dull to anyone else. <laughs> That's exciting. Learning new stuff is exciting. Yeah. And sort of getting braver about it. Like yesterday, I managed to knock a really neat hole all the way through a 50 centimetre wide um, block wall construction, which is our house, from the inside to the outside to put a vent through. And I thought, you know, to begin with, I thought, oh, no, I'm going to make a real hash of this. It's all going to go wrong. The house is going to fall down. But by the end of it, I thought, oh, wow, that's actually quite neat. The house hasn't fallen down and I can actually fit the tube through that's meant to go through. (laughs) Success. Yeah, so it's exciting. But you had, after that initial flurry that you had at the beginning of the relaxation, you went away in the camper van and you were going to restaurants. Have you sort of backed off all that now? Yeah. Why? I wonder why. The weather has been a bit rubbish again, hasn't it? So that's probably had an effect. Um... I've run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> All those things. <laughs> it's great while oh, it lasted. <laughs> yeah. So we're recording this um, just at the very end of June. And um, last weekend, it should have been Glastonbury Festival, which is always a bit of a seminal, pivotal moment in anyone's summer. And so for the second year running, there was no physical Glastonbury. Did that make you... F- how do you feel about that, Catherine? Yeah, I got a load of my phone notifications of photos. This was you two years ago at Glastonbury or... Yeah, if life was like Glastonbury, it would be great. <laughs> Tiring and dirty, but great. But those things are overrated, aren't they? You know, being very awake and being very clean, they're overrated. <laughs> I think until you're very dirty and very tired, then they're probably not <laughs> Yeah, so last week when me and you were chatting, we were saying about the results of the um, events research programme around festival testing or events testing. They've now been published. Yeah, Um, because we we couldn't mention it on the last episode, but there was a lawsuit that got pushed through um, that would uh, make the government release its findings. And so very quickly after that lawsuit was was made, uh, the findings got released. So now they're out. Great job to all of those music venues and and, um, arts institutions that did that. So the uh, big news coming out of the Methodists, 
We're recording this just the day after the Methodist Conference voted to allow same-sex marriage in their churches, which has been, is a really momentous thing for a denomination of its size to do. The URC did a similar thing three or four years ago. The the Quakers uh, also allow same-sex marriages. But it's good, isn't it? Great, yeah. Uh, Taken a bit too long to get there, but it's great news that that's happened. Caroline on our staff team, um, she was listening along and you could listen along to the live stream of the debate and the conference. And apparently it was incredibly moving, really well done. And I think that I'm reading that uh, there was a, a site, everyone stood in silence and acknowledged the pain that had been caused by the church against LGBTQ people for so, so long. It's been part of a long process. And now I guess we look to the Church of England who are also embarked on a big process of, of wondering what to do about, about this issue. So big up the Methodists. <laughs> big up the Methodists. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we should move on quickly to our guests this week. Uh, so who have we got this week, Paul? This week we've got Andrew Copson, who is the Chief Executive of Humanists UK. And it was a great conversation that I found really, really interesting. A uh, lovely man, very generous and very patient with us and, and very intelligent. Lots to dig into. Let's have a listen. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Where, where are you speaking to us from today? I'm here at my home in Leicestershire, rural Leicestershire, a very rural village with uh, just a couple of dozen houses where I live. Lovely. And is that where you've been locked down for a better part of a year now? I have been locked down here, yes, for a long time, which has been, of course, a great privilege um, in the first lockdown when you got to enjoy, uh, you know, a beautiful spring. And so I got to really do one of the things I enjoy most, which was to go out walking uh, with the dog, see the flowers come up, see the primroses and the daffodils and the tulips. Finally try and realise the difference between hawthorn and blackthorn, which I've always known in theory but seldom had an opportunity to practice, which is that, do you know this one? No. no I'll tell you ahead. in case you're ever dropped in the English countryside and stuck for a... Um, identification and it is important actually because you can eat hawthorn leaves but you can't eat blackthorn leaves although you can eat blackthorn fruits Um, hawthorn sends out leaves before it flowers whereas blackthorn flowers before it sends out leaves is blackthorn the the thing that can really hurt you i mean the thorns are really they're very sharp and long that's right and they're also the fruits are what you make um uh slow gin from uh, so it can hurt you in another way as well later on in the year. I also noticed on your Instagram today that um, Frank Turner is a patron of uh, Humanist UK. That's he was right. All, and he was one of our headliners for the last time we had a festival in 2019. Oh, very inclusive. <laughs> That's good. He's, he writes very profoundly about his humanist beliefs, in fact, about, uh, about values, but also about the human being and creativity and so on. We, we quoted him in the little book of humanism that we did um, last year. Um, talking about creativity and he had he had a a wonderful line about when you when when everything suddenly falls into place when you're trying to create trying to make something it's like when the when the scissors are in the paper and suddenly they start to cut and they just slide through and i thought gosh that is how it feels actually <laughs> when you've been wrestling with a difficult you know bit of writing or a difficult job to do and then suddenly it just slides out. i thought that was a beautiful little metaphor yes he's he's very good 
He was very... What was that song, Catherine, that through his agent, through his management, they reached out to us and said, he's very happy to come and play. Glory, hallelujah. That's right. Yeah. You know, we know you've been asking for years, but, but... would you really, really be okay if he played this song? And, you know, the refrain of it says, um, there is no God. Um, and I don't There never was he, no God. It, there never, <laughs> I don't think that he... Did he end up playing that in the live set, Catherine? I can't remember. I can't we, remember. We said we, we would be relaxed about that, but I, I think out of due deference, he didn't, he didn't play it. Well, he, that he was could. very courteous of him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Andrew, could we perhaps come you know straight into the number of things is is there a way of you succinctly describing for us and our listeners what humanism is well i mean the word humanism like all words has had a lot of different uses in in the in in the past but but since the 19th century it's it's the word humanist has come to describe someone who has um, an approach to life that puts human beings at the centre, both in terms of how we find out knowledge, um, but also how we decide our values and <clears throat> attribute meaning to our lives. So, you know, people ask, well, why is it humanist? And it's 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 humanist originally, of course, because it's human as opposed to divine. So it's, it's a rooting of our concerns and our way of living um, and our way of making meaning in the human being. And what that's come to mean, of course, is that humanists are people who this isn't very succinct, so I'm, I'm not quite answering your question the way you asked, but it's, hopefully it's comprehensive. Yeah. The humanist has come to me as someone who sees the universe as a natural phenomenon, doesn't look outside of um, observations that we can make and test through science to try and understand reality, but accepts that um, reality is something that is understood through the scientific method. Someone who doesn't look outside of human beings generally for answers to questions of how we should behave what we should value and why and where our values uh, come from and, and, and what they should be and also um, roots their sense of meaning making in humanity in the condition of humanity again doesn't say doesn't try and tie uh, the meaning of our individual lives or our species to the fate of the universe or its direction of travel um, but accepts that human beings rather than trying to find meaning in the universe as if meaning is something to be discovered actually are in the business of creating meaning we give meaning to our experiences in our own minds as we move through our lives and we can do that um, socially as well as individually so that's really um, uh, what the word humanist has uh, come to mean you said there that that was you know in terms of the language that's been used that that's something that has come into our understanding sort of since the 19th century the mid 19th century but would you would you presumably would argue that 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 form of understanding that form of being has been around forever oh yeah absolutely that's definitely true i mean the word humanism comes into english from german in the 19th century and is sort of given this meaning um but uh those ideas that way of interacting with the world that way of thinking about the place of the human being in things um well that's as old as we have recorded uh you know writing from you can find those ideas expressed in the earliest writing from india in the earliest writing from china in the earliest writing from europe alongside other ideas um, but yeah, humanist ideas are everywhere and every when that we find men and women sitting down to you know write down their thoughts about these things. There have always been people who've taken the humanist view, even quite, um, and that sometimes surprises people at the uh, at the extreme end of things. If you think about the idea, for example, that um, morality is a biological has a biological origin in social instincts and um, is something that is innate and needs to be developed by society. People think of that as a very modern insight of uh, of biology, of anthropology. 
um, and of uh, genetics. But in fact, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, the Chinese philosopher Mencius was saying exactly that, you know, um, with reference to experience and to the behaviour of children and, you know, with other sorts of evidence. Um, So even very modern ideas uh, that, that humanists have, you often will find expressed in, in the ancient world, you know. So yeah, so most humanist ideas have um, can be detected uh, perennially, as I think Julian Hux used to say. It's a perennial philosophy; it pop- pops up all over the place where it can. You mentioned something there, which I wonder if you could expand on, because it was kind of interesting about um, morality or the behaviours of morality are biological; they have like biological origins. Well, this is a really important. Uh, humanist proposition really um and obviously because it contrasts with the very different idea that somehow morality comes from outside people and that it's something that we're not um naturally disposed towards and it has to be enforced or conditioned or incentivized or or, you know disincentivized um and i think it's always a good idea when thinking about this to start with chimpanzees because we know a lot about chimpanzees now we know their behavior um and we can observe it and there's some excellent um experiments with chimpanzees whether these are ethical or not i don't know but they've been done um that do things like reward two chimpanzees for the same task one with a grape and one with a bit of cucumber or one with two grapes and one with one grape and you see very um rapidly um, how chimpanzees that are under-rewarded or unfairly rewarded take against this. They get very annoyed. Um, and sometimes they'll divvy up even the, re- the rewards that have been unfairly distributed um, between each other. What are we seeing when we see that? Or what are we seeing when we see those sorts of behaviours um, in other animals to which we're most closely related? Well, what we're seeing, um, a humanist would say, is the beginning of justice, you know, the beginning of fairness, And that's what a humanist means when they say that our morality begins in in our biology, is that our social instincts are the foundation of what we now, um, with conscious minds, have uh, have called morality. And that's not to say that, you know, biology is the end of the story. Clearly it isn't. We all rely on the thousands of years of hard cultural work that our ancestors did to build up these concepts, to think about them, to develop them further. it's It's a big step from sharing grapes to, you know, the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Um, but, but nonetheless, that's what set us on the, on the path towards, um, towards morality. And I think I was reading uh, in the first lockdown, lockdown one, I was reading a lot about um, anarchy, anarchism. And there's mm. a kind of similar beliefs there. It's that we are, already have all the tools that we need to be able to live communally and have our own uh, like internal morality. And it doesn't need to be attributed from anywhere else. Yes, there were lots of overlaps in the early half of the 20th century between the anarchist movement and the humanist movement. And Nicholas Walter, who was one of the editors of New Humanist magazine in the late 20th century, was was probably more more prominently known as an anarchist. Um, Similar derivations, of course, the ideas as well in the 19th century, this idea that, well, you know, these ideas that you've you've just indicated overlap. Yeah. I don't think I'm a, a full anarchist myself. I think that it is important to have mechanisms of enforcement and institutions and so on in a, in a developed society and i think that, that 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 is important but um i do agree with the the premise you know that um we are not inherently flawed creatures that have to be coerced and restrained or rewarded um we are inherently animals who want to share with each other um and who favor justice as long as the conditions are right you know so i mean um 
And that's really, that's been a, a vital humanist insight in the last century and a half, really, because it's touched every aspect of um, of the fields that have been influenced by humanist thought, everything from child psychology through to theories of justice, you know. It's it's the it's the idea that 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 gives the rational justification for the for the pro- proposition that if we love children and bring them up well, you know, there will be a natural tendency for for society to improve, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and that view of the human being is very important to a humanist. How does that play out? Where that instinct towards sharing and towards goodness um, is blighted in some way or other, yeah. and so. <clears throat> And so a, a, a morality that starts to be developed in a very different sort of direction, which is deeply harmful to the individual and those around them. Yeah. What, what does, how does humanism think about that or, or talk about that? I guess there are two, two questions there in a way. So one is the idea of, of people who don't have those instincts, of whom there are very few, but they do exist, right? So in the same way that a normal human being, and I don't use the word normal pejoratively, but just descriptively, a normal human being is born with you know, two arms... Um, obviously some human beings are born with no arms or with one arm um, and in the same way some human beings are born without the the same social instincts that other human beings have right so so that's that's one category I don't think that's quite what you mean because that's a small a small category of person but but that, that does have to be dealt with of course mm. um, in, in in society I suppose what what you're asking about is where um, what about in those instances where the potential of the human being is squandered, the potential to be moral is squandered, um, either uh, usually inadvertently, I think, by um, bad experiences, bad parenting, unhealthy society, um, you know, all, all the ter- all the many things that can go wrong in someone's life, especially the early stages that have a, uh, a, da- a damaging effect. What do we do then? Well, um, I think that the humanist answer to that is, 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 is going to um, be because it's premised on the assumption that the human being has that inbuilt potential and inherent um, tendency towards um, being social, being good and so on, it's going to probably be based on restorative principles in, in the beginning and to um, to try and sort of put things right um, in, that, in that sense, to correct things in that sense, um, rather than on, you know... Uh, again, deterrence or punishment or, or, or coercion. So I think it, you know, humanist view, and it depends on what discipline you are, whether it's psychology or theories of justice or, um, you know, social policy. It, the, the, the humanist is going to want to try and put things right, you know, to repair things, to, to, to restore things to how uh, they could have been um, and to how they, they now could be, I think, is, is the outline of an approach. I think that it's important to, to stress the fact that you know a humanist isn't saying each human being makes their own morality. A humanist is saying that there are um, you know human instincts, human preferences that are shared. You know this is a this is a, a doctrine of shared values, um, and that if we pursue them, we'll be going with the grain um, of of human nature um, in a way that will you know maximize people's happiness you know the idea of personal responsibility and personal choice isn't the same as saying morality is just a personal matter of personal preference that's that's not the case um it's grounding human grounding your values in humanity generally um rather than just one human's opinions so it's it's still getting people to sign up to almost a social code but that that social code is something that comes from our instinctual 
belief or behavior rather than from uh like a, a divine source yeah or... i think that's right and i think it's saying that morality is the social code right you wouldn't need morality if it was just you in the world you know if it was just if the world was just Catherine, um you know you wouldn't need uh morality because you'd be the only entity so i think it's going even further than you suggested and 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 the humanist view is actually saying you know morality is the social code that's what it is and that's why it exists uh otherwise you know you wouldn't have it um so so yeah morality is a social enterprise uh, a sort of prudential social enterprise for for humanists and humanists accept the evidence um that that science presents of, of where that comes from in terms of the social instincts and we accept the consequences in terms of what we have to do to sustain it, you know, to build just societies where people can uh, feel that they are a party to that contract, they are part of um, the, the, the community um, and so they're in a position where it's in their interests to let their own social instincts have free reign in the same way. That's the hard part these days, of course, is building that just society and uh, um uh, you know how how easily have human societies sorted themselves into unequal and hierarchical uh, situations um, from what must have been a um, a relatively um, egalitarian beginning in early human societies. There was a period in my life where it felt like religion and religious ways of thinking were all going to we're all but going to die out relatively soon. It almost felt like I might, I don't know, it just felt like they were on the wane. I don't know if that was, um, you know, postmodernism in the 90s or I don't know. Those of us who've been brought up inside religious traditions, as I was, I didn't see it as a threat. I just thought that, oh, you know, perhaps religions had its day in a sense. But it feels like it's made something of a comeback possibly uh, is there any sense in which you see you know religions or the religious way of life sort of waxing and waning across you know when you look at history yes it and it does wax and wane i think that's an important point to make i think that it was um you can't draw a straight line from as you know, people relatively thoughtless people i think um in the mid-20th century might have said I mean, you can draw a straight line from the scientific revolution to now and into the future or from the Enlightenment to now and to the future. Um, and you'll see it. You'll see these other beliefs just wane and wane and wane until they eventually disappear. Now, um, I'm not saying that they aren't waning now because they are waning. And I'm not saying they won't eventually disappear, although I don't think they will. Um, but the, the bit I'm contesting is that you can draw a straight line from the, the scientific revolution to now or the Enlightenment to now. I mean, that ignores, for example, the way in which these the way in which humanist beliefs, for example, completely collapsed in Christendom, um, you know, when there was a, a quite a, a thriving uh, humanistic worldview in the pre-Christian ancient world, which completely eliminated. Um, and so it, it depends where you start drawing your line, really, doesn't it, as to whether the line is straight or not. Um, it also ignores, of course, in, in the more modern period, um, religious resurgences like for example in the 1950s in america um to some extent in the 1950s in the uk um or in the 19th century in england you know by the end of the 18th century things are looking pretty tough for religious uh, institutions religious beliefs and then there's a sort of evangelical resurgence um in england that's explained partly by state enforcement of course as well where um you know the state just 
introduces new censorship and conformity laws to to protect Anglicanism and to you know introduce more disabilities for non-religious people for Jews and so on in the 19th century, which is then relaxed again, of course, throughout throughout the, the, the later 19th century. Um, but you know there are ups and downs. It does wax and wane. At the moment, though, and in your lifetime, certainly throughout my religious beliefs in in, in the West have waned consistently. Um, I don't know. Uh, where some people get the feeling of a current waxing that isn't happening um, it's quite clear from uh, from social attitude surveys from value surveys um, across the last decades that the waning is continuing and, and not just of belief but of practice and identity you know uh, quite considerably and continuing to do so on every measure and although some people make a valiant attempt to argue with bit, little bits of data that isn't happening it is um, and it's best just to accept that whatever side of that discussion you're on why does it therefore appear to be waxing i suppose people are talking about religion a lot more than they did when i was young for example i don't know why that is i suppose it's it's partly because um People have started to talk about religion as threatening in various ways. Everyone knows the impact that 9-11 and other matters like events like that had on talk of religion and what religion is. Um, It might also be that it could just be something as simple as the as the Internet. Like, I think that I'm amazed these days by how many people are interested in Star Trek. I think, gosh, Star Trek is really having a renaissance. And then I asked myself, well, actually, isn't that just because when I was a teenager watching Star Trek, no one else at school liked it, and now I've got access to the internet where I can easily make contact with lots of people who do? Do you know what I mean? Like, there might be an artificial feeling that sort of everyone's suddenly interested in this, but all it means is that, well, you just are connected with them now where you weren't in the past connected with them. Um, So I don't know what it is. Uh, I think that churches also are making a concerted... uh, attempt to speak more about things and to make their public presence known and whatever you think about churches um you know the church of england is what the second biggest landowner in england the eighth richest ngo in the world um incredibly powerful has on uh unrestricted uh almost unrestricted um control over a third of state schools where it can do the assemblies and you know they have television slots on the state broadcaster and so on and so if they if they decide to to speak out and to up the ante and to talk more about religion rather than as they did perhaps when I was a child, keep quiet. <laughs> and church, church school assemblies where I were a child, was a child were indistinguishable really from community school assemblies, whereas now the Church of England produces Christian resources for use in schools, Christian, Christian. Um, so I think churches sort of being louder might be uh, uh, make us feel like religion is more prominent. I don't know. It is, it is, it is more prominent, you're right, than it was... Um, in my case, sort of 30 years ago when I was uh, a teenager. Um, But I don't think that's because people are more interested in it necessarily for themselves. I think one of the interesting things about, especially younger people now, but it's also true of um, middle-aged people, is the composite nature of their worldviews, you know, the the eclectic uh, nature of their beliefs. I mean, there never has been a perfect Christian or a perfect humanist or a perfect Muslim in in the sense that you've got someone and that 100% of their beliefs are standard Christian ones or 100% of their beliefs. I don't even know what that would mean, you know, what that would look like. But certainly it is today that more than ever, people's beliefs are eclectic and a bit from here and a bit from there and a composite uh, bit. Are your beliefs eclectic in any way or are you 100% humanist? (laughs) Well, I'm 100% humanist, I think. Um, 
But I think there are lots of different types of humanists, so maybe that's a bit of a get-out question. I mean, I think that the, the what you have with the humanist approach to life is a broad framework. I think you know it's more of an umbrella than a than a than a set of statements to which you just assent. Um, it's more like the it's more like the pitch than the than the than the actual play. You know, I, I'm not very interested in science. That often marks me out amongst humanists as being uh, a strange sort of humanist. But that wouldn't make me an incomplete humanist, I don't think, because, of course, I accept that science is the way to understand the world and that it's very nice for people who, who like it, you know, um, to enjoy themselves with it and, uh, and it's very useful and it is the only way of finding out truth about matter, you know. Um, it's just that I'm not very interested in it. So very few people are, you know, doctrinally sound now in the way that it would be possible to have been a couple of centuries ago, maybe, that you could just say, well, I absolutely, this is my creed and I absolutely sign up to this. I'm just not interested in anything that's not that, you know. People are more eclectic now. I think we all are. I mean, that's happened to religions, of course, as well. The interaction of ideas um, uh, has had an effect on religions. I'm always interested in how humanist ideas have affected Christianity and vice versa in the West, you know, over the, over the, over the centuries. That's very interesting to me. Um, And in a more modern times, for example, how the availability of humanist funerals and humanist ceremonies has changed church funerals and church ceremonies, which, for example, you find that um, Christian funerals now are a lot more focused on the person who's died than they were 100 years ago. And I think that's in part because of the um, social availability of humanist funerals that are all about that, you know, and people see one thing and they want that in their own, you know, and just we're responsive to and incorporate and or reject all sorts of different ideas aren't we these days especially those of us who speak the english language because so many ideas are available to us in that in that uh medium and i think that's what i'm talking about that that today um especially amongst young people the um the eclectic nature of, of beliefs and values is more obvious and i think that's great because of course by the way i think that all of these things are human creations Right. I mean, obviously, a humanist view of all the religions of the world is that they're things that human beings have um, manufactured, not deliberately necessarily, not de- with by design, but that have come about through um, human creativity, imagination, um, sometimes negative desires to control and, uh, and oppress, sometimes positive desires to celebrate and enjoy um, different things. And so, you know, I think that if we take them on that basis, then they're all open to... Uh, uh, to our use. You know, why not use the insights of thinking human beings from all over uh, the world and all over time in all different cultures to make sense of our experience if we accept that, after all, as the humanist does, that, that that's what they are, human human stories, human ideas, human ways of making sense of things. And because of that sort of porosity or that eclecticism and that increasing sort of idea sharing that there is undoubtedly going on, um, is that one of the reasons why, as a humanist or humanists would really really deeply want to challenge that idea of special protection for certain ideas so you know when when you're drawn in on the news or on the radio often it's to speak into situations where perhaps a a particular religious community is appealing to the the protection of blas you know or that's blasphemous for you to Mm. to say or think that and um you know in recent times the the depiction of the prophet muhammad um has you know got certain um communities in batley, in batley very, grammar school very, batley grammar school yeah mm. very, very riled and um how does you know what what's your view of 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 blasphemy of blasphemy laws of the even the idea of blasphemy 
Well, I don't, of course, I have no, I have no belief at all in the concept of blasphemy because, you know, because it is uh, by its definition an insult against God, you know, and I don't believe there is any God. And um, so that's a dead letter, really, from the start, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, the idea of blasphemy. Um, so I suppose what we're left with there is the, is the question of offence. You know, the, the wider question always seems to be to me, you know, are there, are there grounds to protect people from offence? Um, and I, I think that, you know, Broadly speaking, with some caveats, the answer is no. There aren't grounds from protect, of protecting people from offence. Um, and I, of course, I go back and forth on this question as we all do these days when we're confronted with these difficult, very difficult situations throughout society. Um, and and it's and it's and the important thing to say is that it depends very much on context. I mean, that's an important humanist value, of course, but it's a value for lots of people too. Is that you know, no two moral questions are identical. Every context is different um, uh, from from my point of view, at least. And you can't uniformly apply the same rules um, in one situation as you would apply in the other. So, but with just stick, sticking with the concept of offence, um, I don't accept that offence is a harm necessarily so you can it can be very harmful in that if it is concerted if it is repeated if it is hostile if it amounts to bullying right you know you can see how the consistent giving of offense over time in a targeted way um could constitute bullying and harassment and then and there would be cases for example for not for not allowing it in a workplace or a closed environment or a school or even on you know on the street you don't want people to uh you know um, stand outside uh, churches and, you know, just consistently, every day, repeatedly tell everyone how wrong they are and how disgusting their beliefs are about God or sin or whatever, right? You don't don't want that to happen. Or outside mosque or outside, or outside humanist HQ, you know, you don't want that sort of thing to happen. That sort of uh, thing, I think, meets, meets uh, the bar of harassment, of bullying, and becomes a harm. But offence by itself, you know, the feeling of being offended, I don't think that that does constitute harm uh, necessarily. And in fact, it may be very fruitful. You know, if we're if we're disturbed in our opinions, um, if something brings us up short, um, it can and we're receptive to it. um, It can be the beginning of personal growth, personal development, a change of mind. as an individual, or it can begin, it can become the beginning of empathy, of seeing someone else's point of view. Um, But in general, I don't think that offence is harmful. Uh, Martin Rosen, the Guardian cartoon, who's obviously a prominent patron of Humanist UK, gave a good talk once that I went to called Giving the Gift of Offence. Uh, when he pointed out that from from a cartoonist's point of view, at least, and a satirical cartoonist's point of view, and here we hone in on the Mohammed question a little closer, from a cartoonist's point of view, offence was absolutely necessary to make the important political and social points that a cartoonist wants to make. If you take, for example, the cartoon, which I understand was the one at issue, or probably was the one at issue in in Batley Grammar School, which is the cartoon from Gillen's Post and the Danish um, publication of um, the Prophet Mohammed with a bomb in his turban. And this was an image um, that was offensive um, to uh, to some Muslims and non-Muslims, I believe, were offended by, by that image because of the uh, because of the link that was being made, um, in their view, um, between Muslims and terrorism. But that was the point of the cartoon, because it was printed just in the wake of um, violent 
acts of terrorism and murder um, across the Middle East and in the West by people who said they were motivated by the Prophet Muhammad's teachings and by Islam. So the point of that cartoon was to associate those two things, to bring people up short um, and to have them uh, discuss it. I think that um, offence is, is, is a not very useful concept for policing people's expression. And I would, I would never try to use offence as a, as a way of legislating for or otherwise policing people's expression. Andrew, it, it seems like there is maybe a commonality between our actions as humans on earth regardless of whether you have like a christian belief or a humanist belief like we all we agree on some things which is you know look after your brother treat people how you want to be treated but that that the disagreements are almost um something that is from our history or something that is what happens to us after death that we don't agree on why is that important? It's not something I discuss, for example, with any great frequency with religious people that I work with to shared ends. You know, it doesn't come up very often. I don't sort of suddenly, if I'm working on something in the world of RE, let's say, where I've worked mostly with religious people or in my own community, you know, when I'm doing, some, doing something, you know, around here, I don't sort of break off halfway through the litter picking or halfway through work, talking about the curriculum to say, oh, you know, I'm very, very concerned about the fact that you think that people live after death and I don't. So I think probably the answer is to, to some extent it doesn't it, for me at least have have much of an impact but i do think that there is a link for some people between beliefs and values and i don't think that we can draw the dividing line so clearly as that and there have been long periods in western society for example when i think that the christian belief that there is a world to come has been extremely damaging and people have lived miserable lives who didn't have to and they've been prevented from rising up against injustice um, on the false belief um, that there was a better life to come. And those lives can never be relived. Those women, those men, those, those children can never be given back the, op the one opportunity they had, you know, to have a flourishing and happy life. They're gone forever, that's my view. Um, and, you know, the origin of the crime that was their failure to live um, or they're not even having the opportunity to live in the way they would want. The origin of that crime is the Christian belief we're talking about, right? So I think that beliefs do affect values and they do have consequences. Um, and you find, and we're only now even unpicking in our own country and in the West more broadly, the very damaging consequences um, of a large number of beliefs on our lives. I mean, I, you know, when I, I'm obviously, uh, how old am I now? 41. Um, and so when I was growing up as a gay young person, for example, it was a very different world from, from the world of the early 20th century. But I know, of course, older uh, gay men in particular and knew even more 30 years ago. Um, one of the great things about humanist movement, actually, I suppose it's like this in, in, in religious organisations too, is that you it's very intergenerational. You, you know, you get friends with people who are very different ages that you wouldn't otherwise know. And I know that from some of the experiences of older people there. And I just think, gosh, you know, only now we really... And they had very negative experiences, of course, based on um, what was at least presented as a, as a religiously motivated law, um, although there were other aspects to it too, of course. Um, and you think of the, the people who've you know, suffered without divorces because of divorce laws or the people who suffered because of laws that criminalise their sexual um, orientation or you think about uh, children um, who've suffered and haven't had the you know, enjoyment of their human rights and freedoms because of religious doctrines um 
a whole sea of suffering, really, um, that we're only now beginning to unpick the legislative framework for. Um, and I know that you can make a case as well, both in the Muslim world and in the world that's part of the world that's been historically influenced by, by Christianity, um, for the very social structure um, and the way that we use war as an instrument of policy and so on as being rooted in, 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 in various theological Christian beliefs. So I think that... Um, at that level, I do think it's important to discuss beliefs, to um, expose them. But, you know, the normal person, the normal self-identifying Christian who think, thinks themselves as having Christian values and who that shares those values with you know, the normal non-religious person, the normal humanist or the normal Muslim or the normal Jew who's going about their lives, there's no need for them to have daily disputes about you know the doctrine of the trinity or the or, or or life after death but i think on a on a on a social level it is important for us to to talk about the bigger beliefs because uh, they underpin a lot more of the of the fabric of our society than we often realize to me that might be a description of uh, fundamentalism in any kind of religion you know that when you when you take religion to the extreme maybe extreme is the wrong word but it's it's like a black and white it's like a definite right and wrong which i think that you can find in all aspects of life and it's definitely there in religion and has been there but it's also not there in religion as as well so under the umbrella of christianity i would say that you could find those black and white very harmful views but you could also find people that are more poetic with it or more open with it and is that the same within is that the same within humanism as well andrew uh, is there a is there a sense of is there a sense of certainty that goes with humanism possibly oh no i think no? if anything the keynote is doubt i mean okay. yeah absolutely it's uh, <laughs> uh doubt 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 all the time um constantly doubt constantly question constantly interrogate constantly reassess i think that that's more the, more the message um no authority no immemorial tradition no one's word no letter of any law no tradition of conformity um no government mandate no no lesson you were raised with you know is immune from questioning and in fact mustn't be and I, I think it's, a, it's seen as a humanist virtue to give yourself a mental spring cleaning every now and again, you know, and to see how your own beliefs match your values and whether you can justify that uh, as well. Um, so, yes, no, it's quite the opposite. Um, doubt, doubt, doubt all the time. I like that mental spring clean. <laughs> harder, harder to do than, than to, to want to do quite often. <laughs> but, yes, important to do. And is there a sense in which... Um... You know, because like in our religious tradition and certainly sort of like with a Greenbelt worldview, if there is such a thing, I think we would see the best of religious in instinct being about wanting to speak truth to power, whatever you mean by that phrase. And some of the things you've mentioned around state schools, um, the, the, the wealth of the Church of England, where do humanists stand on that that sort of, you know, um, we've talked about the way that uh, our morality can tend towards can can morph towards a form of social justice, but where where do humanists come in on that sort of like calling out the 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 harm that power wreaks in the world in whatever form that power is found, often institutional, always almost always institutional. Yes, that's right. I think that I mean I I, I 
it's we're always in a difficult position with churches because of course um uh criticism of churches and their use of power um that come from humanists is often uh dismissed as anti-religious right so it's often better if criticism of churches comes from christians you know um because otherwise um i mean i don't think it's right i think it should be dismissed as anti-religious but it, it, it gets dismissed as anti-religious and that's easy for especially for cynical cynical people who are trying to preserve their power which of course is true of many people at the tops of many churches and institutions um they can easily dismiss more easily dismiss um critiques that come from humanists than they can critiques that come from christians and so and of course there's a fine tradition within uh i was going to say protestantism but of course to some extent within catholicism as well of 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 um dissent and of um challenge that clearly is is much to be endorsed i believe in dispute you know i believe in the healthily disputatious nature of um especially of western society but of 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 all um successful civilizations really i think but the question of that's churches and i do think it's important to continually to question church power and i do think people are remarkably blind to the continuing wealth power influence and privilege of the church of england in england and i think that that's you know I don't know why that is. I think it's because it's, uh, it's seen culturally as a sort of, you know, vicars in bicycle clips and ladies in Evensong type uh, uh, affair. Um, and, of course, there are so many good people at the, at the, at the community level doing good things, right, um, uh, that, that people look at that and they think, that's well, that's the Church of England, you know, if anything, a, a net force for good. Um, and people aren't aware of the institution, you know, of, of the wealth, of the power, of the influence, of the policies, you know, to do with schools or um, to do with, you know, uh, state funded chaplaincy or bishops in the laws or all those sorts of things where the effect is quite different. Um, anyway, for, so forget churches, but power, power more generally. Yeah, it, it, you, you find recurring, especially in the political humanist tradition, especially in the last hundred years, we're celebrating our 125th anniversary as an organisation this year. Um, and it's been interesting to look back at, at the people who uh, were at, at meetings and writing the pamphlets and doing the causes 125 years ago and the sort of things they were interested in. Um, and especially in the mid 20th century, too. And it was all about, you know, how do we um, how do we as a new democracy, which Britain was then becoming, of course, in the 20th, first half of the 20th century. How do we make power, make sure power is exercised for people? How do we make sure that, you know, justice is seen as an aim? How do we make sure that the individual matters? How do we make sure that, you know, our institutions are constrained um, and that there is social justice as well as individual um, human rights? And I would say that that was something of a humanist obsession, really, um, because, you know, politics uh and theories of human justice is all we have <laughs> nothing else is going to you know when we're dead that's it so that if there's ever to be justice if there's ever to be um a good life uh for as many people as possible well it's got to be in this world and the only mechanisms by which we're going to bring that about are political ones 
And so um, it's something of a, of a of an obsession. I don't think there's any accident that people like Bernard Crick, you know, who brought in citizenship uh, education, um, for example, or Karl Popper, who wrote about you know, the open society and thought about this, or that so many thinkers and activists around justice um, have been, you know, associated with, with the humanist movement or have had humanist ideas, you know, Clement Attlee, Ramsey MacDonald, and Nye Bevin. Um, Jenny Lee, I mean, the inventors of the welfare state, the inventors of the Open University, they're all humanists. And so I think that it's all about uh, the rightful exercise of power. And unfortunately, in Britain, you know, power is extremely unevenly distributed still, um, and possibly even um, becoming more unevenly distributed as time time goes on. Uh, I don't know why that is. It has a complicated set of causes i suppose but part of it i think is the low the low value that many people in our country continue to give to citizenship you know to the idea that we are we're human beings in society of course and we're members of families and members of communities and 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 and, and members of uh, a nation in 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 the political sense but i still think that we've got a way to go um before a majority of people in this country see themselves as citizens, you know, people who are responsible for each other at the ballot box and through the systems that we have and people who can shape our, our common life, you know, through that political framework. I think, sadly, we're coming up to the end of our time, which I've, this has been a fascinating conversation. I was really looking forward to it and it's, it's not let me down. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for giving us some time and... You're exactly the kind of person that I would love to be sitting around a bonfire with at a festival at two in the morning drinking whiskey and talking about. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice Thanks. to meet you too. Thanks Here's so to much a better for your future. Time. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> See you. Bye bye. So that was really, really interesting. Did you enjoy that conversation? Yeah, fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's nice that we got to laugh with him a little bit about that Frank Turner story at the very beginning, about when Frank came and headlined the festival. And uh, we'd had those conversations with his management about uh, the song Glory Hallelujah. Yeah, so, because you've, it, it, you know, Frank Turner is somebody that you've wanted to the festival for ages. And I've seen Frank Turner live and I thought he was brilliant. And I've also heard him sing this song live. So straight from the beginning, I was like... I'm not sure about this because the chorus says, there is no God, clap your hands together. There is no God, ring that victory bell. And I couldn't imagine that chorus happening over Greenbelt, but you were more relaxed about it. Yeah, I thought, you know, if we want to have Frank Turner to the festival, we want Frank Turner to the festival. And that's, yeah. part, that's part of who he is. And yeah. it's a great song. <laughs> It's a great yeah. song. I, I guess I would struggle to sing along with the chorus. That doesn't mean that I don't think it's a great song. It's a catchy chorus. <laughs> Very catchy. Very catchy. I can see why so many people think that. <laughs> um, yeah, but in the end, he didn't actually play that. I, I did uh, remember back and ask a few people, and he, he didn't actually sing that song in the set at Greenbelt, which we didn't say that he didn't have to, you know, if you see what I mean, but he chose not to play it, which as Andrew Copson said, was very polite of him. 
<laughs> yeah, and actually, I remember you looking through all the lyrics of those songs. He wrote us a very thoughtful email, kind of talking about it, which was really lovely and really kind of him. And you looked through all the lyrics of the song, and you explained to him why we would be totally relaxed, and that the religion that he's talking about in that song is not is not a kind of religion that we would recognise or we would believe, and that we are inviting him because he's an amazing musician, and we wouldn't want to shape or change anybody's artistry in order to fit in with our festival which is exactly how we should be uh and sometimes i get scared because <laughs> i can see i can see the complaints <laughs> i think it's, it just shows to me that you care you know when we're curating the festival we do have to think carefully about everything that we stage and promote and produce and it's all part of that care and concern thinking about the artistry that we bring to our audience And one thing that um, right at the top of the conversation, you asked Andrew, you know, how he'd been. He lives in a small rural village in Leicestershire. And he talked about the privilege and how much he'd enjoyed lockdown one. <laughs> and um, it took my mind back to those days. I don't know about you. It feels like a long time ago now. It's hard, isn't it? Because I, I'm I'm really aware talk, with these podcasts, you know, me and you, we've we've been doing these podcasts all through lockdown one and lockdown two and lockdown one B when we were in the tiered system or however you want to call that, and um, and <laughs> we've found we've 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 found some positives in it, and uh, and I'm really aware that not everybody that that is a privilege and that isn't universal at all. There's probably a Venn diagram with which includes things like number of kids at home, <laughs> size of house, or whether your income has been stable or mental health, and yeah, all of those things. I'm not sure I've been paying close as close attention as Andrew has though, because I, I'm not sure I'd know how to identify a hawthorn from a blackthorn. That's fine. Just don't try and put any of them in your mouth. What about that bit, Catherine, where you were um, asking Andrew about the, the overlaps or the connections between anarchism and humanism? I thought that was quite interesting because anarchism is something that you've developed a bit of an interest in. What, what can you tell me? Yeah, I have developed a bit of an interest in and it's it's funny actually because I've got a few books on it in my house and my dad came around a few months ago and saw the books on anarchism and was like, oh my gosh, what has happened? <laughs> like, very worried uh, because... I... <laughs> Did he report you to the Prevent Programme or something? <laughs> Probably, because like people's ideas of anarchism is, is, is very, and mine was, very violent um, uh, kind of belief system and when I started to read about it actually it was nothing like that so I found that quite interesting I wanted to learn more because so from what I understand anarchism is the belief that we all have social and individual instincts so that's kind of similar to what um, Andrew was saying like these are innate with us and um that in order to and we have everything we need in order to live a happy and social life we're born with it and anarchism wants to release people from release these social instincts from its captors so in terms of religion they think that's the domination of the human mind and that um property is a domination of our human needs and that government is a domination of our human conduct and so the idea is to release ourselves from all of those things. 
Oh, that's really interesting. Have you found, since you've read into that and thought more about that, have you found it a helpful way of thinking? Would you describe yourself loosely as sort of like a gut level? Would you, given ideal circumstances, would you say that you would be drawn towards anarchism? I'm kind of drawn to everything, I think. I think I can see a lot of sense in it. Like to me, release releasing ourselves from those things is the ultimate freedom, I guess. Andrew was saying, actually, he doesn't see himself as an anarchist because he does think there needs to be some sort of like overarching government or or systems in place in order for society to function. Um, I don't know whether they do. Maybe. TBC. Let me do a bit more work on it. Yeah. (laughs) When we're going about our everyday lives and we're just involved in working together, um, the, the big religious differences don't seem to matter. Um, and I think he came back and said, yeah, you know, like if I was out litter picking in my village, I wouldn't stop and chat with people about what they thought about transubstantiation or the afterlife or something. But behind all that, the bigger picture is he was he was arguing that actually it does matter what people believe and why they believe it and how they believe it, because it really affects the way that society works. And in particular, he, he said about you know, that really obsessive belief with the importance of life after death has resulted in all sorts of really damaging stuff happening. I thought that was quite, quite powerful when he was talking about that. Yeah, the devil's in the details. Because when he was talking, you know, I thought, you know what, like, this is this is kind of a universal thing that I see when I talk to people with different belief systems. It's the belief that no matter where it comes from, whether you think it's a god or whether you think it's biological or whatever, we have this thing within us that we know how to act and we know how to treat each other and it makes us instinctively want to treat each other well and live in in community with each other and look after each other. And um, But there are these... So does, then does it matter about these differences that we've got? Like, does it matter that, you know you know what what are we arguing about but he came up with a really good point actually that when it starts to leak into those kind of ideas or leak into policy making you know i think he talked about that because of christianity lots of people were lead would stay in unhappy relationships because they didn't want to get divorced or that people would maybe not be comfortable with their own sexuality because it was taught that it was bad and actually those are quite harmful things, in my opinion. You know, even more widely than that, you know, just people being asked to suck it up, just to put up with stuff, because don't worry, here's the prize. When all this is over, you can go to heaven. And as a result, it sort of almost can encourage a sort of a passivity and putting up with things, which is really, uh, I thought Andrew was really powerful saying those people only get the chance to live those lives once. And if religions are telling them a story that say, just just go, go along with it, put up with it, take it on the chin. I mean, that's not great, is it? It also stops you um, from making change, you know, seeing things that aren't working in your community or society. You're seeing people that are hurting in your community or society and feeling like you should do something about them in the here and now. Like he was saying, social justice is all we have. Like (laughs) this life is all we have. So, you know, we're drawn to social justice because we want to make things better. I remember in the 1990s, 
Christian Aid, who are one of our partners, our main partner at Greenbelt for, for so long now, 25 years or more. They had this brilliant tagline that says, we believe in life before death. And I thought that was really, it's stuck with me ever since because, you know, as a Christian NGO, uh, primarily drawing on the support of the churches, what they were trying to say there is, look, it's not all a pie in the sky when you die. Um, our mission, our work, our love needs to be about the here and now. It needs to be about building a fairer and a more just society before people die. What did you think? He was talking a lot about how, especially now, maybe because of the invention of the internet and how we're able to kind of find people that agree with us or find lots, find out about lots of people, different people's belief systems, that um, people are, there is a more eclectic nature to people's belief systems now than maybe ever has before. How about you? I mean, obviously you work within an organisation and for a festival which has Christian roots and a very strong Christian identity. But do you do you look to other sort of religions and belief systems for inspiration and, and encouragement and ideas and stuff? Definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, different and philosophies and uh you know stories definitely and it changes all the time i don't think i i don't think i've ever had a set belief that hasn't changed and so i'm always very cautious about going to people well i believe this or this is definite because it changes and i learn more and i you know i grow up and it changes i was brought up um very particularly in a christian context so that's the that's the system of belief and those are the stories that I know best and they they make a lot of sense to me they I find them really really helpful and for me growing up has been a journey to gradually learn to pay more attention and to open myself up to more and more ideas that I can chime with that I resonate with I think oh yeah okay that's brilliant yeah I think I'm very similar because I obviously grew up with like a, a Roman Catholic religious foundation and I think no matter where I'm l looking and understanding different things from that is my foundation and, and I, things always come back to that you know even in this conversation with Andrew about humanism I'm like oh yeah I get that because that also chimes with what I understand of like a Christian faith you know they they go together that's that's my comparison about everything that I'm learning i guess yeah i'd i'd so agree with that and and that's why you know sometimes people look in on greenbelt or look at someone like me and think that oh he or greenbelt or we we don't really believe anything we just believe anything do you see what i mean we don't really have a core or, or we're not rooted but i i don't think that's necessarily true um i think that i think it is important to have roots in in a particular story or a particular belief um but th those roots mean that you can grow outwards and make connections rather than just sort of like grow up very very straight and narrow and not make any connections and not look outside of that particular belief system i think that's where it gets dangerous and exclusive those roots are what built the festival but we house a lot of different people within that building yeah, like it. <laughs> We've grown a tree which has grown big and spreads its branches and its boughs wide and to give shelter to all. <laughs> what did you think? There was one really important section where 
particularly you were going back and forth with him about sort of morality and biology and it connects to what you were saying about anarchism about you know naturally as humans we have what we need for things to turn out well for us and for society what did you what do you think about that yeah this is something i'm really interested in because like when you have a look at the animal kingdom for example i feel like i feel like there is maybe an understanding that animals are born with the things that they automatically need in order to survive and live a healthy happy life and i do think that humans have that too yeah you could call that god or you could call that evolution or you could call that whatever i, I do i do think that there is, i do believe that what do you think that's the bit where i i not i don't feel entirely comfortable about that because i just think that life is a little bit too broken on too regular a basis to to trust that completely and one of the reasons why i still hold on to my belief in jesus christ and the gospels is is one of the things that i think that my faith acknowledges is that no matter how good we want to be no matter how good the conditions are we will still make mistakes and hurt ourselves and other people because there's something about being human that is definitely not perfect and i know that andrew wasn't saying that humans are perfect i he he definitely wasn't saying that but there's just this little logic in in the humanist approach or argument which seems to suggest that if the circumstances are right everything will be all right i don't think that's necessarily the case and one of the reasons why i believe why i have a faith and why i put my trust in god is that I know I need help. I know I need help to to do better, to love better, to be more generous. There's a question there about whether humans pop up perfect with everything they need or whether humans are inherently flawed and so then need like a set of guidance about how to deal with that flawed part of humanity. You see, I don't necessarily believe wholeheartedly in what the Christian faith would call original sin, like which was what could connect with that idea of humans being born flawed. We need much more time to talk talk about all that sort of stuff. Oh, we could talk about this for hours. All I know is that without some form of um, love and support and challenge and understanding that comes from with outside of myself... I would struggle, I think, to, to, to be fully human. So anyway, another fascinating conversation. It almost feels like that particular one. We need way, way more time than a podcast allows to... We, to... Let's get him to the festival. We need to have a good old combo. Yeah. I'd like to have a drink with him. I think that he'd really yeah, I think he'd really enjoy it too. Like you, I'd love to get him to the festival and then hear him talk, have him on a panel and then down the Jesus arms. Let's really get into this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, who are we talking to um who are we talking to next week on the podcast, Catherine? Yeah, Dante Stewart. Fantastic.
So, yeah, we're talking to Dante. He first came to our attention when um, Chinny McDonald, who's one of our trustees, pulled together our panel conversation in the summer of 2020 around Black Lives Matter is the church complicit. And she said, you've got to bring this young theologian in from the States called Dante. Uh, we hadn't heard of him. We reached out. He said, yeah, I'll be, I'll be up for this. And he, he was brilliant. He was so helpful. So we thought we needed to dig in with him a bit more. And he's got a very different voice than we have had listened to so far on this podcast series. But Catherine and I really enjoyed chatting to him. We always like it when people uh, respond to the podcast to tell us what you're thinking. You can email us on stbi at greenbelt.org.uk. You can also let us know what you're thinking on social media. Our Twitter is at Greenbelt. Our Instagram is at Greenbelt Festival. And we're Greenbelt Festival on Facebook too. Yeah. And if you want to um, get notifications about the podcast coming out and get a bit more in-depth, um, some links and references and resources, we do a Friday email uh, that you can sign up to, greenbelt.org.uk forward slash podcast. We'd like to say a few thank yous to the people who help us make these podcasts. Thank you to Daisy Wedgarrett on the staff team who helps us produce this podcast. And thank you to Paul Truman again on the staff team who helps us frame the episode. And to Josh and Jake on our Recorded Talks uh, volunteer team. They help us edit this whole thing and put it together, make it sound half decent. So thank you very much to them. And one big thank you to Lee Baines from Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for the use of his track, which we use in our titles. Um, it's called I Can Change. And we are forever grateful to Lee Baines and the Glorifiers for everything they did. It was funny how um, there was a we, our podcast got interrupted, didn't it? It did. <laughs> yeah. We'd sent someone round to have a word. <laughs> We've got our people everywhere, <laughs> even in rural Leicestershire. <laughs> Sorry, there's someone knocking at my window. That's face. Do you know who this is? You'll, you'll laugh at this. Is the church warden? Because <laughs> she's just obviously heard that I'm speaking. To. Will you give me five seconds? I'm very sorry. What's it? What's it called when you from uh, when you know? Innate. Yeah, no? like you know when you know from monkeys to humans. What's that? Evolution. Evolution. <laughs> <laughs> Finding words. Is humanism a religion? Can I say that? It's like not a religion, is it? It's like, it's like no, it's 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 not a religion, and yet um, belief system. Yeah, it is a belief system. Yes, it is a belief system. Yeah, definitely, it's not a religion, but it is a belief system. So I love talking to people about their belief system. So I found this very interesting. <laughs>